A quick glance at the latest headlines is evidence enough that we're living in a strange new world. Whether it's our culture's obsession with gender and sexuality, full-scale embrace of identity politics, or addiction to the drumbeat of shallow self-help aphorisms, it's clear that we're living in a post-Christian age that has largely lost its footing. In our interview today, I'm talking with Carl Truman, professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, and the author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. In his newest book, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution, Carl boils down his insights from The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self for a broader audience, exploring the history of Western thought and answering two simple questions. How did we get here? And how should the church respond? Let's get started. Carl, thank you so much for joining me again today on the Crossway Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. So your new book is called Strange New World, and it's, uh, I think, a really perfect title for uh, the topics that you're seeking to address because I think it captures really effectively the feeling that many of us have uh, when we look at our culture today, when we look at the headlines today, when we look at the controversies today. Things can feel very strange. They can feel chaotic and maybe confusing. Um, And so I want to get into some of those dynamics, why that is. But first, the title is obviously a reference to Aldous Aldous Huxley's famous book, Brave New World. What was Huxley doing in that book, and how does that relate to what you are doing in your book? Well, Huxley, of course, was writing one of the great dystopian novels of the 20th century, looking forward to a future where, if we were to try to boil down the point he was making, where pleasure Mm. has essentially enervated humanity that everything comes down to to the to the present moment to pleasure there's a sense in which although he wrote it earlier than George Orwell's 1984 it represents the uh, another form of authoritarianism or another form of totalitarianism to that which we find in 1984 Mm. Uh, George Orwell had this vision of a very top-down brutally imposed dictatorship led by Big Brother. It was clearly, uh, in the first instance, a knock at uh, Stalin and the 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 Soviet Union. Whereas Huxley's polemic in some ways was more subtle. It was a world where we might say personal individual ambition had been completely subverted and undermined by the provision of of pleasure. Mm. Would that be more in like the the postman amusing ourselves to death kind of vein? Do you see connections there? Yeah, that kind of thing. I would say that a good case can be made for saying that that, uh, Orwell clearly exposed classic totalitarianism for the evil it is. Huxley gets at the more subtle form of authoritarianism that we now find ourselves experiencing. Uh, we live in a world where you know, the provision of pleasure has dramatically reduced, I think, uh, the personal ambitions we have, mm. the obligations we feel we have towards others. There's a sense in which Huxley's brave new world is kind of the world in which we find ourselves yeah. today. So I riffed on that for my title on the grounds that I wanted people to be thinking about the Huxley book. Uh, and also I wanted to draw out the fact that this has been a rather rapid development mm. for many of us. Uh, it's in the space of my lifetime, if you like, the, the Orwellian threat mm. of the brutal totalitarian regime has been replaced by the 
the Huxleyan threat of the, the hedonistic authoritarian regime. Mm. So would you say that when you think about what you're trying to communicate in your book and what you're seeing in our world today, uh, is there a distinct, uh, to use the Huxley term, a pleasure-oriented uh, character to it that is, is driving a lot of the change that we're seeing? Uh, I perhaps wouldn't use the word pleasure, but therapeutic. I think what we see is a therapeutic world, to use Philip Reeve's language, uh, a world where increasingly we, at least in the West, regard things like oppression and hurt as, as psychological categories. And we expect society to take account of that and to change itself on, on the basis of that. So I think what we, what we see in the West is you know, pleasure has perhaps... Uh, connotations that are not entirely always appropriate for the world in which we live. I would say more of a therapeutic mm. world whereby the purpose of life is me feeling happy in myself here and now. Mm. And so similar then to Huxley and Brave New World, would you say there's also this totalitarian dynamic to uh, this therapeutic emphasis that we live in? Like, where does that fit into this? Yeah, well, we're seeing that emerge very much with the the polemics that uh, are coming out against freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and the way that's being quietly enforced through the forces of big tech, YouTube, Amazon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think of the the banning of my friend Ryan Anderson's book from Amazon mm, yeah. is when when Harry became Sally. Uh, simply on the grounds, I think, that it presents ideas that make certain people, certain powerful lobby groups in this country, uncomfortable. It's, it's a book, to clarify, it's a book about transgenderism. It's a book about transgenderism that, that runs foul of so many of the modern pieties, not least the idea that uh, you and I are not to say to anybody else that the way they think about themselves or the way they think about their lives is in any way wrong or inadequate because that's hurtful. Mm. And Amazon's banning of Ryan's book is simply a, a macro example of what takes place at a micro level day to day in many of our lives. Yeah, and I want to get into the specific issue of sexuality and how that the change in our culture's perception and understanding of sexuality that, that we've seen happen very recently in the last few years. But before we get to that, um, would a lot of people would talk about the the time that we are living in as a society, perhaps broadening it out to the West in general, as a post-Christian uh, type of society, a post-Christian culture. Do you uh, appreciate that language? Do you agree with that? Is that the way you would talk about the world that we're living in right now? Yes, I think that's appropriate language. We're living in a world that is, uh, has cast off uh, Christianity as its its guiding philosophy or its guiding ideology cast off the practical morality of Christianity as as a guidance for the way to to frame and to structure society and is also in the game of uh, very self-consciously repudiating or erasing Christianity hmm. it's not just a case that we've moved beyond it but there is actually a uh, an antithetical stance towards Christianity, a despising of Christianity that is coming to be fairly dominant within the cultural imagination that I think marks this age off as rather distinctive from many previous ages. How would you respond to the person who hears that and, and says, uh, that's, that's overstatement, that is alarmism. You look at the polls that are still done in our country, in the U.S. in particular, and you, st you still see that in the majority of Respondents would claim perhaps a some kind of Christian faith or identity um, If not the majority, it's still a sizable portion of uh, the population 
that there is still a a Christian uh, dominance in our culture uh, that is maybe even often in their minds a problem. That's an interesting point. I would say that the self-identification of people as Christians does not translate into people living Christianly, people having a Christian impact on the cultures in which they find themselves. Christianity is often used as a kind of tribal label or a convenient label of identity in a way that's completely detached from not only from historical Christian doctrine but from historical Christian ways of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ligonier each year or every couple of years do these interesting surveys where you know, they'll ask how many people identify as evangelicals and then ask how many of those believe that Jesus is God, for example. Yeah. And it's always, there's always a staggering disparity between the number of evangelicals there are and the number of people who actually believe that Jesus is God. So I tend to take uh, such surveys with, uh, you know, the majority of people are Christian with, with a pinch of salt. Yeah. It's often simply a way of trying to provide some kind of historical marker for who we are. It doesn't necessarily translate into a practical commitment to Christian doctrine or even to a veneer of Christian ethics. Mm, Yeah. Well, so I want to get into then some of the specific areas where we've seen a lot of change or chaos for many of us in our culture of late. And I think we should start then with conception changes in how we conceive of God himself. Uh, And one uh, quote you write in your book is, Uh, We might say that the death of God is also the death of human nature, or at least the end of any cogent argument that there is any such thing as human nature. Unpack that a little bit for us. Uh, Some of us might be familiar with this idea of the death of God. Where did that come from? How do we see that playing out in our society today? And how does that then impact even how we view ourselves? Yeah, well, the phrase God is dead is perhaps used most famously by uh, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche in the 19th century in his work The Gay Science, which is an aphoristic a philosophical book that's attempting to to rebuild philosophy or to rebuild an approach to life in the wake of what he considers to be the Enlightenment's devastating criticism of traditional Christianity. And when Nietzsche talks about God being dead, he's making the point that uh, Enlightenment philosophers haven't simply pushed God to the margins. They've effectively eliminated any need for God at all. How, how did he believe that they did that? Well, it would depend on the philosophy you're looking at. But, for example, uh, David Hume and his argument from causation and his uh, polemics against natural theology, natural religion, uh, essentially says that there's no way that you can construct any reliable picture of God based upon the way the world is. Uh, One does not need, if you like, God as a hypothesis for the world. Mm. Immanuel Kant uh, has no real place for a revealed God in his thinking. God is necessary as a kind of presupposition that keeps everything stable but there's no need for a revealed God Mm. in Immanuel Kant's work and Nietzsche calls the bluff on this he says you know what what you guys have done is you've killed God and you cannot get rid of God in that way and retain all of the the morality all of the the things that you consider to be benefits of belief in God once you've actually rendered the Christian God implausible Mm. once you've pushed him to the margins so when I'm talking there about you know, the death of God and human nature, I'm, I'm really, I suppose, agreeing with Nietzsche at that point and saying, if you get rid of God, then you have to get rid of human nature. It's what is human nature? Traditionally, human nature is understood as we're made in the image of God. Well, if there's no God to be made in the image of God, then we are not made in God's image. 
should probably clarify a little by saying when I'm talking about human nature there, of course, I'm not talking about the biological reality of what makes us human. Uh, I'm aware, as Nietzsche was aware, that human beings can only reproduce with other human beings. Mm -hmm. We are a different species to the other creatures on the planet. But I think what Nietzsche is getting at and, and where I think he's a profound influence on or, or a profound harbinger of modern thinking is that human nature does not have any moral structure to which we as individuals are beholden. In other words, for me to flourish as a human being does not require me to work out what humanity is and then conform myself morally to it. There is no humanity in mm. terms of moral structure out there. All there are are individual human beings and individual wills and my flourishing is a matter for my own determination at that point. And I think when you think about how modern society thinks about things like ethics and morality, by and large, that's how a lot of people think. I have my truth, tell me yours. If it works for you, great, but some other belief or some other way of approaching things works for me. Mm. That goes to, to the heart of, of the elimination of human nature as something which perhaps one could say, something which imposes yeah. moral requirements upon us. So when you remove God from the equation, then you, by definition, to Nietzsche's point, would be you remove any kind of transcendent human nature uh, yeah. imposed on us by, by a higher power. Uh, how does that square then with the, the current emphasis that we see, I feel like, popping up in all kinds of ways, the emphasis on human rights, universal human rights, where there are these there's an intrinsic value in humans. There are these intrinsic rights that humans should have, uh, rights to uh, self-expression, rights to be who they want to be. Yeah. Um, that How does that square with this idea that there is no, though, clear standard for what even humanity is? Well, I think what you have in modern uh, human rights discourse is really an in, a rhetorical trick being played. They use the language of, of universal human nature, and yet when you dig down into the, into the, the weeds of it, they don't really believe in universal human nature at all. The baby in the womb has no rights. Uh, and often what's talked of as universal human rights is the rights of every individual or every individual community to self-determination. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not traditional human rights. Uh, take, for example, uh, Martin Luther King, Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s. What underlay uh, Dr. King's approach to, to civil rights. It was the idea that the African-American and the Caucasian-American were both human beings and therefore the African-American should be treated in just the same way by law and by society as the Caucasian. And, and a, human being had a theological significance to yeah, it. It had a theological significance. It had a transcendental a transcendent uh, significance to it. Today, when we talk about human rights, we tend to be thinking about the rights about specific communities or specific individuals to determine their identity in any way they wish. In other words, we're not talking about human rights. We're talking about individual autonomy. Mm. And I think that's the big difference. So what we have today in the, in the discourse of civil rights, it appears to be the same language. Human rights appears to be the same language. But actually what it is, is an articulation of individual autonomy and individual rights, not the rights of human beings. I think that's, that, that hits on, let's try, let's try that again. I think that hits on one of the things that can make 
a lot of the change that we're experiencing as a culture is so chaotic and confusing for many of us is that the issue of language seems like certain certain terms have uh, been subtly redefined or shifted a little bit in their meaning and uh, it can be hard to keep up with that it can be hard to even notice that the issue of universal human rights is a great example of that where uh, where it has arguably changed in its definition or use. Uh, speak to that. How, how has that played a role in the, the strange new world that we find ourselves in? Again, good question. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's, it's proved deceptive and disorienting for a number of reasons. So, for example, we might say uh, gay couples have a right to get married, the same as heterosexual couples. Well, there's a sense in which under the old regime of human rights, Every human being had the same right as every other human being. Every man had the right to marry a woman. Every woman had the right to marry a man. Mm. Uh, now, however, we've introduced this new category, the category of, of gay as a sort of reified construct, if you like, and we're applying the language of rights to that category in a way that makes us think, well, well, well was that individual over there deprived of a right under the old regime. Well, no, he had the same right as everybody else. He could marry a woman the same as every other guy mm. could marry a woman. But now that sounds intrinsically unfair to us, I think precisely because that old language is being used in the context of new political identity categories that have, that have crept in. Mm. And that's what makes it confusing because, yeah, we're all interested in justice. We're all interested in human rights. What we don't realize is the rhetoric stayed the same, but the underlying philosophical basis has shifted in a very, very dramatic way. Yeah. So let's speak a little bit then to the, the issue of society, how we live. We've, we've already kind of got into this a little bit. In what ways has society, our conception of society, changed uh, in recent years? Maybe the rise of the individual uh, as, you know, I define myself apart from uh, my social, my social setting, my sure. social. Community, okay. That kind of thing. Yeah, I think one of the things we're seeing at the moment is the the, the triumph of the the authorization of inner feelings. Now, inner feelings have always been important. You find them in the Psalms. Uh, you will find them in ancient literature. We didn't just inv invent inner feelings. Inner feelings weren't invented by the Romantics at the beginning <laughs> of the nineteenth century. No, they they've always been around. They've always been an important part of, of who we are. But they've always been set in or balanced uh, in relationship to other things. What we've seen over the last hundred years, and particularly I think over the last fifteen or twenty years, is a dramatic acceleration in in the authority granted to those feelings. So that increasingly institutions and external authorities have been seen to become weaker, have declined in authority at the same time as our inner drives, our inner feelings have, have gained ascendancy. Most obvious example is the issue of, of transgenderism. Uh, I've used this example a number of times where I've said, you know, a hundred years ago, if you'd said, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, well, your doctor would have said to you, that's a problem. Uh, it's a problem with your mind. We need mm. to, to treat the mind to bring it into conformity with your body. What the doctor's doing there is saying, no, your real identity is, is grounded in your body. And if the mind's out of sync with the body, then, then we need to work on the mind. We would do the same thing even today with somebody struggling with bulimia or anorexia who comes and says, you know, I'm a, I, I feel grossly fat, when they're obviously incredibly thin, we would say, okay, there's a, there's a psychiatric issue here. Mm. We need to treat the mind in order to make this person understand the authority their body has for their identity. 
On the transgender issue, though, interestingly enough, we, we now say, oh, it's a problem with the body. We need, to, we need to adjust the body. We need to use hormone treatment. We need to uh, do surgery in order to bring the body into conformity with the mind. The shift on that issue tells me that that authority granted to inner feelings has, in certain areas, become virtually absolute. And that's very problematic because once you deny any external authority on the notion of the self, the whole conception of society becomes extremely problematic. And we see this in very practical ways. You'll see accounts of, I, I was reading somewhere recently in uh, one of the, the problem pages in, in, in one of the, the newspapers. Uh, somebody had written into the, I don't know what we called them, we used to call them agony aunts, the problem solvers, the Dr. Phil type. Oh, the so, Dr. Phil, yeah. The Dr. Phil type. So my child wakes up each day and decides what gender they're going to be and what name I should use about them. What should I do? Well, think about a world where Everybody wakes up every morning and decides on that day who they are and what gender they have. It doesn't allow any authority other than their own feelings. You cannot sustain a society on mm. that. Society depends upon external relationships. It depends upon some kind of uh, external authority or institutional structure to maintain and, and to replicate itself. And if this psychological self is taken to its logical conclusion, society will become unsustainable. Well, in your book, you trace this back to Rousseau, I believe, in the Romantics, who would, who would have made the case that society in some way uh, had a, a deleterious impact on us as individuals, that society tended to uh, harm us as individuals, that there was a purity in the individual. Is that, is that a correct kind of summary of what they taught? And how, does, how do we <clears throat> see that dynamic at play in our culture today? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Rousseau is the key man here. If we could just live according to the cry of nature, everything would be okay. What, of course, saves Rousseau and the Romantics from a kind of the, the radical anarchic subjectivism I've described is they believe in something called human nature. Mm. They believe that the cry of nature for you uh, would be the same as the cry of nature for me, or they would coordinate beautifully. So, so you could, so you could, in theory, there could be a foundation for a, a common living. Yeah. Uh, based on our ingrained yeah. human nature. Human nature has a moral structure, albeit expressed through that cry of nature. This is where Nietzsche is so critical. Nietzsche comes along and says, "No, no, no, you you can't get away with that." Mm. This idea of human nature as having this this morally moral shape. That's theological nonsense. It's metaphysical nonsense. You've got to get rid of that. Uh, so I would say today, yeah, we're, we're, we're all the heirs of Rousseau in that the, the, the notion of that inner authentic cry of nature is very powerful. And it's why, for instance, we tend to think of, of, of children and, and youths as, as wise and authoritative and older people as cynical corrupted. and corrupted, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. That's a very Rousseau kind of position to hold. But at the same time, we've also imbibed enough Nietzsche to think, well, I, actually, this, this human nature doesn't have any mm. moral structure to it at all. And therefore, we allow our wills. It, it's plausible to us to allow the human will to be determinative of identity. Yeah. Another source of our, I think, skepticism of society broadly defined, but then maybe in particular institutions, uh, traditional kinds of uh, groups like that, uh, has to do with the way that we so often have politicized so much of um, our society. And you write uh, in your book, uh, there's a fascinating quote that I'd love to hear you elaborate on. Uh, Karl Marx has won, 
For as soon as one side in the cultural conflict politicizes an institution, the other side has no choice but to engage on those terms. We all are, in a sense, Marxists now. Unpack that for us, and how does that help to explain maybe the, I feel like the widespread suspicion of institutions that we, and, and or, organized religion, organized politics, all that that we see today. Yeah. Well, there's a, I mean, there's a lot lies behind that statement. I think, first of all, bearing in mind the, the whole Rousseau idea that society, the whole purpose of society is to corrupt you, is to, to remake you in its own image. And then you get Marx in the middle of the 19th century who argues that, that human nature is essentially a historical construct. You know, human nature changes over time depending upon the relations that individuals have, the relations that society legitimates and, and reinforces, etc. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. People in the 19th century don't think the same as people in the first century yeah. or people in the 21st century. That can be a hard realization for people who might have a simplistic view of human nature. You know, maybe the conservative Christian who thinks, you know, my way of viewing myself, my way of viewing the world is just the way that the biblical authors viewed the world. It's the way that all Christians throughout centuries have viewed the world. We read history and we start to see that that maybe wasn't the case. Yes, and I, I think you know Marx is a good son of Hegel on that point. And one of the things I would say about Hegel and Marx is they're not they're not all wrong. They they grasp hold of some important truths, and one of them is the way we think is changed over time. For Marx, the key, of course, is that the way we think is shaped by our economic relations, that really what drives history, what drives us as societies, what shapes us as individuals is the economic struggle, the class struggle that underlies everything. And that means uh, that everything plays into that. You know, you might say, well, the Boy Scouts isn't political, and Marxists would say, no, no. The Boy Scouts is a way of the bourgeois middle-class society instilling certain mm. values that preserve it, that maintain it, that justify it within the youth. Therefore, the Boy Scouts are political. And we have to strip away the veneer of objectivity or neutrality or of harmlessness from the Boy Scouts in order to expose what's really going on. So does that explain uh, the the politicization of so many companies. We look around at like big brands and companies in our society today that there used to be a time when, you know, X company was just sort of, they produced that product that we all liked and we all drank and it was fine. Now it feels like everywhere you look, companies are uh, uh, feeling the need to express their political identity, some kind of position. Is that related to this? I think it is. I think when you get a society where everything becomes politicized, then, yes, there is a sense in which companies have to play the game. But I would be a little cynical about this. Companies. I think it's a marketing ploy, by and large. <laughs> I think when these companies adopt political positions, it's a way of playing to that, that general uh, social imaginary, that general way of, of people thinking about the world that is highly political. So mm. when Amazon plays the political card, or when J. Crew plays the political card, when, I, you know, Victoria's Secret, fly the rainbow flag. What they're doing is, is they're doing, I, maybe this makes me sound a bit Marxist, but they're doing what capitalists always do. They're playing to the market at that point. Of course, it reinforces the politicization of society. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it's, they're not simply floating on the surface of politics as a reflection of society. They're also shaping society mm. by trying to capitalize on the currents that they perceive going yeah. on within society. Does this obsession with politics and a constant emphasis on uh, the 
two sides, or maybe there's more than two sides oftentimes, the, the conflict there, do you see that extending all the way down to the individual and just even as how we as people think about ourselves, think about our world? Increasingly so, uh, mainly because I think private space is being eliminated in our world. The idea that uh, we live, you know, we live a public life in the public square or at our workplace or at our place of learning, etc. And then we have a, a private space in the family. That's coming under huge pressure from all directions, not only from big tech, but also from social media. And what we're seeing in, in the world today, for example, is where people's private opinions on things are now being made public on social media and may cost them their job, may cost them their place in public society. So I think the individual is becoming politicized because the polis, the public space, is becoming all comprehensive, all embracing. And the private sphere where one could you know, dissent from dominant cultural mm. opinions and trends, that's being squeezed, that's disappearing. Mm. Why do you think it is that it, many people will make comments like, you know, there's this small contingent of people, you know, on social media, on Twitter, blue check Twitter is, is a phrase that's often thrown out. And it seems like they don't represent most people living in the U.S., living in the West even more broadly. Most people are more reasonable. Your neighbor next door is not as obsessed with some of these things. But it seems like there's a certain, there's a certain, uh, power that a few people exert in kind of shaping the way the conversation happens, shaping the categories that we're all then being forced into. How does that dynamic happen? Uh, how do you see that playing out uh, in all of this? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think a big part of it is, is institutions of power, that these, the you know, Instagram, uh, WhatsApp, I'm not a social media person, so I'm kind of <laughs> scrabbling around for the terms here. Uh, twi Instagram, Twitter, Twitter Facebook, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, these have become uh, sort of focal points for power for no obvious reason, it seems to mm. me. You know, I've never seen anything on Twitter that was remotely <laughs> worth reading or earth-shattering. And yet the institutions that shape our culture, the media, the movies – Hollywood, the big commercial enterprise, big tech, etc. Uh, these groups have seized onto these things and have made them influential, I think. Mm. So there's a sense in which, okay, uh, maybe they don't represent your neighbor, but they represent a significant part of the national economy. And again, not wanting to sound too Marxist about this, but I would say, look and follow the money. Where the money is, there you'll find mm. find the power. And, and those influences, they might not it might not be an overt agreement uh, with the guy next door with what they're seeing plastered up on billboards or yeah. uh, figuratively. Uh, however, there does seem to be this slow, gradual influence, worldview shaping yeah. Yeah. that happens that maybe is even under the radar in, in that person's own mind. Well, and think about the, we've already mentioned the, the banning of, uh, my friend Ryan Anderson's book from Amazon. Think about that for a moment. Amazon shifts, is it uh, be 50 to 90%? It's some huge amount of books in America are shifted by Amazon. If Amazon bans a book, that doesn't just ban that book. As Ryan has pointed out on numerous occasions, that sends a message to publishers that if you publish a book that takes this line, Amazon's not going to sell it, which means that publishers aren't going to be interested in publishing it, which effectively means that Amazon can exclude 
from influential public discussion certain views. Now, at the moment, it's just a handful of books that have been submitted. But if Amazon decides to really ratchet up its functional censorship, that's going to dramatically uh, shape the availability of viewpoints within modern society. And that is going to shape how your neighbor thinks. Amazon may not be representative of your neighbor today in banning a book on transgenderism, but the banning of the book may shape the way your neighbor's children think about these things and may ultimately reshape the way society as a whole thinks about these things. So I'm inclined to say just because these big tech companies or social media don't represent the majority of people in the United States, that doesn't mean they're not the most influential things in the United States mm. because the power they have to reshape public discourse is quite striking. And what's most worrying about that, of course, is that this is not a First Amendment issue. Generally speaking, we've always thought in the past that, that governments do the censoring. And therefore, if you have a constitution that protects you from the power of the government, you're relatively safe. But what happens when governments are not the most powerful people mm. in our lives, when it's private corporations? And that would be the, one How of the do big, we address that? And that's one of the big arguments that Rod Dreher makes in his, his newest book, I believe, Live Not By Lies. Yeah. He looks, calls it the soft totalitarianism. Yeah. yeah. It's the way of tilting people's minds and imaginations mm. in, a di in certain directions, which is bringing us back to where we started, the kind of Huxley thing, that totalitarianism in the brave new world is not really imposed from above. It's, it's imposed by tilting people towards pleasure and passivity. Mm. That connects well with the next topic I wanted to discuss, which was morality, notions of what is right, what is wrong, notions of, just, notions of justice. Uh, and I wonder if you could unpack a little bit, how does the, the way that we've come to view ourselves as authoritative center uh, of, of the universe in a lot of ways, and uh, the, the denigration of society's role in forming us, shaping us, how does that all then come to influence the way that we think about right and wrong? Well, think about the language we often use about right and wrong today. It's interesting to reflect upon some of the instinctive words we'll use. You know, that was hurtful. That was offensive. That was distasteful. That's what I would call aesthetic language. It's language that really speaks of feelings and emotional response. Mm. Gag reflex kind of language. Yeah, we don't say that was wrong. That was right. That was wrong. Yeah, I, I joke to the students in class that you can say uh, Truman is a bald guy with crooked teeth. <laughs> and that's a very hurtful and distasteful comment, but it's actually correct. <laughs> yeah. So you know, that takes us, I think, to the, to the heart of moral discourse today has tended to default to taste. And we see this in the discourse of social justice that's going on at the moment. What's interesting is that anybody who dares to dissent from the dominant discourse of social justice uh, is not refuted by argument, but is essentially dismissed as an evil person mm. or a hurtful person or as a mean-spirited person. Well, those aren't arguments. Those are gut reactions. Those are emotional reactions. It used to be called an ad hominem attack, and it was a fallacy. Yeah, ad hominem was a fallacy. Now it's the modus operandi of so many uh, uh, progressives out there who are very quick to talk about being kind, etc., etc., to those who disagree with them, and yet are rarely, if ever, kind, in my experience, mm. to those who disagree with them. Certainly not to those who disagree with them on their right rather than yeah. their left. And that gets to then the issue of moral intuitions. 
That's something that you talk a lot about in your book. Others have written about this. I think of Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous yeah, Mind, yeah. where he, he helps to unpack a little bit the distinction between moral intuition and moral reasoning. Uh, and I wonder if you could unpack that for us in the context of this conversation. Uh, one quote you have here that I'll just read and then you can comment on. Uh, the way we think about the world is not primarily by way of rational arguments based on first principles. It's much more intuitive than that. And that means that the story of the modern self is not simply the story of big ideas thought by profound thinkers. Mm. It's the story of how the way we intuit or imagine the world has come to be. And that involves far more than books and arguments. Yeah, it's a good question. And I, uh, I would go to back to the French Revolution to, to think about this. The French Revolution was uh, an interesting exercise in, in rationality in Europe that ended in horrendous bloodshed. Even the form of execution in the French Revolution, the guillotine, is a wonderfully scientific and clean mm. way of execution, so say. But we know that this attempt to rebuild society on the basis of reason alone ended in terrible bloodshed. And one of the most interesting responses to the French Revolution came from the German philosopher Friedrich Schiller. And Schiller is wrestling with the question of how do we make people moral when it's very clear that reason by itself is not up to the job. Mm. And Schiller, building really on, on fairly standard Enlightenment psychology, says, you know, human beings, we're not just reason. We're also... He was like, we're also sensitive. We're also, we might say, emotional or sentimental beings. And the key thing to being a moral human being is to, is to have our reason informed by our sentiments and our sentiments informed by our reasons. So it has to be a two-way street. It has to be a two-way street. They have to limit each other effectively in order to avoid uh, engaging in the kind of bloody crazy excess that you found in the French Revolution. And I think Schiller's really onto something there, that there is a sense in which uh, we need to understand that morality is not just about emotional intuitions. It does have a kind of objective content to it. And I think where we failed in, in, in the present world is we've lost our sense of the objectivity of morality and have emphasized purely the, the emotional nature of morality. It's all about gut instinct, mm. gut reaction, gag reflexes today. What we need to try to capture is, is that balance or that, that interpenetration of what I would call moral principles and moral intuitions. Uh, how we do that, well, that's, that's an interesting challenge. I would say from a Christian how we do that, well, we start with worship, that the worship service is interesting. What, what is a Christian worship service? Well, on one level, there's a doctrinal content there. The content of the gospel informs the worship service, shapes the worship service. But it isn't just a doctrinal statement. Mm. We sing praise to God, doctrinal praise, but we sing it. It has a, a form that touches our sentiments, that touches our emotions. So I think with, with Christians, we need, to, we need to think not simply about arguments that we can develop in order to address the issues of the present day. We need to remind ourselves of how important worship is and how important it is that, that what we say, what we sing, what we hear, the rhythms we experience, we might say, in the worship service, all of these things serve to, to shape us as whole human beings, not just as thinkers, but also as emotional beings. So the two things, mm. uh, thinking and our emotional intuitions, are coordinated. Do you think there's any truth to the, uh, the, 
the idea that perhaps uh, conservative Christians who would hold to these orthodox, orthodox Christian doctrines have been so focused on maintaining the, the right doctrines, the right thinking that we have uh, neglected, especially not only in our discipleship in turn inside the church, but even in our evangelism outside the church, we've neglected the, the moral imagination dynamic to this that the, the broader culture has so laser-focused laser focused in on. I think so. I think one of the reasons for that might be that, you know, to go back to, to what I said about Nietzsche and Nietzsche's critique of, of the Enlightenment philosophers sort of living off the morality of Christianity long after God had died. There's a sense in which society, up until fairly recently, the, the intuitions of society broadly tracked with the moral intuitions of Christianity. It's only in the last 50, 60 years that we've started to see a major collapse on that front. And I think that made Christians lazy. We didn't have to do the moral imagination thing because society did mm. that for us and it connected with what we taught about God anyway. Now we find ourselves in a situation where, wow, all of that capital has disappeared. And suddenly we're, to use a cricketing metaphor, we're batting on the back foot here. We're having to put ourselves in a very defensive position on this. So yeah, I think we've, we've fallen behind on this one. Mm. And then how does all this relate to questions of justice? Uh, personal morality, the, the, that feels connected to justice, but this idea of justice broadly, social justice in our society has become such a big concept that is so polarizing often. Yeah, and again, there's no easy answer to that question. I think one of the one aspect of that, of course, is the massive expansion of victimhood. That in the past, justice had a certain empirical dimension to it. It involved uh, not being able to vote. It involved not being able to get work. It involved not being able to sit in certain seats at a restaurant or use certain rest, uh, room, uh, restrooms at a restaurant or not to be able to sit in certain seats on the bus. You could point to, to things. Mm. What we've seen in the last 30, 40 years is this massive expansion of victimhood where victimhood has become psychological. I feel oppressed. Now, somebody used a word. It doesn't actually stop me using uh, that seat in the bus, but somebody used a word that made me feel bad. Well, when you expand victimhood uh, in such a psychological way, you also subjectivize it. Uh, victimhood becomes subjective. Anybody who claims to become a victim, it becomes, guess what, distasteful to say they're not a victim. Mm. So I think what we've seen on the justice front is... Is, is an increasing sensitivity in our society to victimhood combined with an increasing expansion of the category of victims. And that's why it's become so polarizing, uh, because there are now so many victims out there with what are, according to the, the basic social imagery in which we now live, legitimate claims yeah. to victimhood. Do you think there's something to it, though? Um Someone might acknowledge, yes, some of these examples that we might see plastered on the news are, are uh, too extreme, yeah. uh, not, not legitimate, uh, too broad of a definition. But do you think there's any validity to the argument that some of the categories of quote-unquote quote victim in our society today are legitimate categories? Like there is a real thing, uh, a psychological uh, victimization that can happen that maybe in the past wouldn't have been characterized that way, would have been brushed under the rug and ignored. 
Um, what do you think about that? I think it's absolutely correct. And like so many of these things, they are only powerful and they only grip the popular imagination because they contain important elements of truth. Mm. Uh, you know, Rousseau, I, I, I'm not a big Rousseau fan in terms of thinking, well, society is what screws you up. But it would be hopelessly naive to think that society doesn't have some impact on yeah. the way we think and does screw some of us up. So I would say, uh, for example, words. Can words be very hurtful and harmful? Absolutely. When I think back to my school days, I got in the occasional scrap. I played sports. I got kicked about a bit on the rugby field. I didn't play rugby very well, but I, I certainly you know, picked up a few kicks and bruises here. I don't remember any of them in specifically, except for I've got a tiny scar over my one eye that's a reminder <laughs> of something that once happened. But I don't remember any of them in particular, but I can remember words that were said against me yeah. that hurt me. So, yes, certainly don't want to trivialize the issue of the power of words to do damage and of, of psychological damage. The problem is, though, once you make psychology the primary category for determining victimhood, it's very, very difficult to, to discern what are the real claims and what are the trivial claims. Think of the whole category of spiritual abuse that's emerged over the last couple of years in the church. Is there such a thing as spiritual abuse in the church? Undoubtedly. But I've been talking to pastors recently who've said to me, you know, if I preach the law of God and tell people that such and such behavior is wrong, am I going to be vulnerable to an accusation of spiritual abuse? To which my answer has been, well, if those people enjoy behaving in that kind of way, yeah, you might find mm. yourself vulnerable yeah. to that, that accusation it's of spiritual become, abuse. It's become an avenue uh, to, to push back against something that we just don't yeah. like. It's become an escape route from any form of authority. Now, again... To any listeners out there, don't mishear me as saying that spiritual abuse doesn't exist or as saying that psychological harm isn't real harm. It is. What I'm saying is the way we determine what is real harm and what isn't and what the degree of harm is, that gets incredibly subjective mm. once we really start accenting the psychological dimension of all this. Mm. Let's turn now to the topic of sexuality. Um, this is perhaps one of the most... Uh, forefront issues in our culture today it has been for a long time and it probably will continue to be for uh, a long time in the future and this uh, why, why is that I guess to start what is it about sexuality that makes it so sticky so central to uh, our conversation as a culture today well, historically, one could point to the influence of Sigmund Freud and say what Freud does in the late 19th early 20th century is identify our identities with our sexual desires. And he does it using a scientific idiom, which is very powerful and, and very persuasive in the world of modernity. And his ideas are picked up on and uh, developed by a lot of uh, the, the architects of pop culture. Uh, the constant presentation in, in the popular media of uh, human fulfillment as sexual fulfillment, mm. of sexual desire as being who we are. That has helped this, this idea percolate down into the intuitions of ordinary men and women. Uh, again, to go back to something I said a few moments ago, another reason why it can do that, of course, is that Freud is onto something. For most of us, our sexual desires are among some of the most powerful desires we experience. World literature bears witness to this. Mm. Think about the Iliad. What's the, uh, what's the dramatic background to the Iliad? It's... One guy 
has stolen another guy's wife because he couldn't control his sexual passion and has run off with her. Mm. So world literature witnesses to the fact that actually sexual desires are very powerful. Very powerful. The Bible, David and Bathsheba, for mm. example, would be the, the biblical example. So there's a kernel of truth in this. Our sexual desires are very powerful. And also, uh, I, I think from a Christian perspective, you know, being told that my fulfillment is to be found through fulfilling my sexual desires, that's a pretty attractive sales pitch for an identity. Mm. And there is what uh, sociologists call the double hermeneutic effect in play, that, that when you're told something is real, you start to treat it as real and behave in accordance with it. Mm. And when you have in the, the late 40s and early 50s the two Kinsey reports coming out on male and female sexuality, uh, much has been done to show those reports were highly distorted. They were junk science. Junk science. But once you're told that, hey, this is how your neighbor's behaving, this is how you know, X percent of American males mm. and, X, uh, and females are behaving, you'll tend to behave that way yourself. It you're, pushes you in that direction. Yeah, that becomes the, the expectation that grips your imagination. So there are various reasons why, why sex has risen to the, mm. the sort of the top of the pile in human identity, and I think those are some of them. So yeah, the take that... Take that next step then. So we see why sex has become so important to us. Bobby. But it seems like it's more than that. It's more it, it, for many of us, for many people in our society today, uh, sex is uh, it is an, an issue of identity. It's not just something that we do, something we yeah. talk about. It's it is actually who I am. Yeah. And issues of sex, sexuality uh, come to define us yeah. in a really unprecedented type of way. How did we get to that next step? Well, as I say, mainly through, I think, cultural uh, presentations, uh, through pop media, through people telling us that that's the case, and also through uh, an oversimplification, I think, of the, uh, 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 of the growing up process. Mm. I was talking to somebody just the other day who said that uh, they'd been chatting to a local doctor who was telling him that 80% that of the nine-year-old girls that he came across in his practice now identified as bisexual. Well... What's happening there is, well, you know, nine-year-old girls, nine-year-old kids. I mean, if you can remember that far back, you know, as you head towards puberty, as you go through puberty, there's a lot of sexual confusion. There's a lot of confusion about sexual desire at that point. What we've done, of course, is we now deny children the right to be children. Now, hey, if, if as a nine-year-old you feel some sort of erotic impulse towards another nine-year-old girl, you're going to be told you're a lesbian or a bisexual. And that double hermeneutic effect kind of mm. kicks in, if you like, that comes to grip the imagination. Mm. So I think there are a lot of things going on in society, not least the oversimplification of the growing up process relative to sexual desire that is serving to, I would say, simply perpetuate the confusion that most of us experience mm. at puberty, to make it into something fixed when actually it was much more fluid than that. Yeah. To speak to the conservative Christian listening right now who uh, would, would in intellectually hold to Scripture's teaching on the issues of gender and sexuality yeah. and, and the appropriateness of sexual yeah. behavior uh, as, as people, are there ways in which that in your own experience in a church, teaching students, in your relationships, uh, that we can see the impact of the broader culture's understanding of sex impacting Christians 
uh, maybe in ways we don't even realize. Yeah. Well, I would recommend people go look up uh, my colleague David Ayer's work, A-Y-E-R-S. Uh, I think summaries of his work have been published at Christianity Today and Gospel Coalition, where he's looked at the, the sexual behavior of Christian teenagers, Christian 20-somethings. And you'll see there that in practical terms, traditional Christian teaching on sexual behavior no longer grips the imagination of younger people. That there is a difference, I think, between Christian young people and secular, purely secular young people. But the difference is not as great as it was and is certainly not as great as it should be. So I would say look at some of the sociological work that's been done to show how sexual behavior is being transformed. Mm. Look at statistics on pornography use. And pornography use is not simply something that, you know, one watches and then goes away. Pornography restructures the brain. It rewires neural pathways. Pornography is changing the way people think about sex, changing the way young Christian men and increasingly young Christian women think about sex. I would say open your eyes and look at the world around you and see that this is is alive and well, unfortunately, within the church. I always think of the contrast between uh, Genesis 19 and Judges 19. Uh, in Genesis 19, you have Sodom and Gomorrah. In Judges 19, you have the rape and murder of the Levite's concubine. Mm. What's interesting about those texts is that about a third of the Hebrew is the same in, in both passages. Interesting. Uh, the, writer, the writers are making the point, or the writer of Judges is you know, lifting from Moses and, and making the point that the events that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah outside of the people of God, well, they're happening in the people of God now in Judges. Mm. Uh, and by using that language, he's very explicitly making that point that, yeah, what starts in Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't stay there. Mm. It comes within a few generations to, to penetrate deep within the people of God. And I think we're in a similar situation today. You know, uh, what happens in California doesn't stay in California. Mm, yeah. It comes to permeate the whole Christian church at some point. So then let's speak uh, to pastors and church leaders broadly. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of these different changes in our culture that have their roots back uh, even hundreds of years ago, but are nevertheless coming to a certain type of fruition mm. in recent years. And the change feels chaotic. It feels strange. Yeah. Um, and yet it's happening. It's influencing all of us in yeah. subtle ways. What can Christian leaders do when they think about the, the call to disciple the people in their yeah. congregations? What does it look like to be intentional about counteracting some of the negative impacts yeah. of this? Well, first of all, I think the basics of Christian discipleship remain the same, teaching the whole counsel of God. I think uh, worship on a Sunday, proclaiming the word, engaging in the elements of worship, and singing. And that's more than just the doctrinal transfer of information. There's a certain shaping of the imagination that's happening yeah. in that context. Yeah, and I think that takes place in the whole worship service. It's not just the preaching. It's, it's what we sing. It's how we sing it. It's what we pray. It's how we pray. Uh, so I think that that all has its... It's important. I think the community life of the church is important to recapture. If your strongest, if identity is a function of the relationships we have, then the strongest identity you have is going to connect to the strongest relationships you have. And if Christianity is going to be the strongest identity you have, then your relationships in the church need to be the strongest relationships mm. uh, that so you with, experience. So would then a natural... Uh, a natural application of that be that uh, it might be wise, it would be good for Christians to prioritize in a certain sense 
relationships with other Christians. We, yeah. we want to have that be the dominant influence in how we think about the world. Absolutely. I mean, Jesus himself says, by this will all men know you're my disciples, by the love you have for each other. And on the other side, Paul says, bad company corrupts morals. <laughs> so if you want to be a powerful witness to the world and you want to be a good disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I think being part of a vibrant church is absolutely foundational to all that goes on. I do think that we, you know, we might want to uh, think about how we preach. Uh, the expressive individualist world in which we now live, stories resonate particularly powerfully. Now, the danger with stories is it can become just a case of, hey, you tell me your story and I'll tell you mine. Mm. The Christian story is powerful because it's ultimately true. It's declaring truths. But I think that story form of preaching speaks powerfully to people today. I think we might, I think pastors, particularly when dealing with the, the damage done by the sexual revolution, should have at their fingertips good, solid, secular statistics on these things. Mm. The young person who says, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? Pointing them to Bible verses may well be enough to convince them of the Bible's position on homosexuality. But they may still worry that, well, God's just commanded that because he wants to hurt my gay friends. Mm. If you can back that up, with statistics that show that, say, the male gay lifestyle dramatically shortens life expectancy, raises uh, issues of physical damage, raises issues of disease, which it does. Uh, if you can back it up, then you're able to say to me, you know, God wants people to flourish. And it's very clear that this lifestyle is no way of flourishing. So I think that pastors might want to have more in their, their pastoral arsenal than, than just the relevant Bible texts mm. or the relevant arguments. It's hard to argue with facts, and I think pastors having access to uh, to those kind of statistics can be very, very helpful. Mm. Uh, maybe drilling down then to a more specific category, uh, speak to parents. I think parents are often on the front lines of this. They're seeing this yeah. because their kids are in schools. They yeah. have friends. They're consuming this this media, the new media, yeah. in a lot of ways that many times parents are not even familiar yeah. with. They don't even know what's going on. Um, and speak to the parent who's, who's got their kid coming home to them, expressing ideas, concerns, opinions that are just so beyond anything that they've ever considered. Yeah. It feels yeah. very strange to them. Yeah, well, the first thing I think parents need to realize is that institutional authority is the least of their concerns. Often Christian parents tend to be focused on what are the... What we are think the, of the schools. What are the schools teaching? And I want to suggest that actually, whatever your kids are learning, the most important things they're learning are probably not from the schools these mm. days. It's from the internet. It's from TikTok, YouTube, whatever. Uh, one of the things I've become acutely aware of in the last year, just talking to students at Grove is... The authorities many of them look to are not the traditional institutional authorities that I worry about. <laughs> They're the informal ones that I don't even knew, I didn't even know existed, if you like, these forums, these discussions, these yeah. YouTube things. So I think, first of all, don't assume that because your kid's going to a good school or that you're homeschooling them, that they're not being taught really bad stuff by powerful authority figures. They are. They're getting it from the internet. Be aware of that. What would be a wrong way to respond to that kind of uh, warning? Because I could see some parents saying, yeah, okay, I'm clued into this concern. I'm just going to cut off the internet access. Yeah, no more. Uh, well, that might be an appropriate response in some situations. I'm not going to say that that's a wrong thing to do. I would regard as insane giving a smartphone to any kid at school 
Uh, and frankly, I wouldn't care if it makes them look geeky and square to their pals. I would rather that my kids did not have access to the garbage that smartphones give them access to uh, than that they fit in with the cool crowd at mm. school. So my, 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 my argument on that point would be, parents, hey, you need to be grown-ups. Uh, your calling is not to be the friend of your child or the enabler of your child. Your role is to be the protector of your child. So I, I would not actually say that, that that may not be the wrong reaction yeah. in some circumstances. But setting that aside, I think be aware of the situation. Be aware that the way they therefore think about the world is very different to the way that you think about it. And on that front, talk to other parents. There are going to be others who are going through have gone through similar experiences. Uh, in the most extreme circumstances, you know, a kid comes out as trans or something like that. There are forums, there are groups of parents all going through the same thing. Draw on the, the wealth of resources mm. that's out there. Read the best books on these subjects. Don't cut off lines of communication with your children. Uh, if they're not talking to you, who are they talking to? Mm. So try to keep those lines of communication open. Pray. Uh, pray the promises. Ask the Lord to look after them. And then behave responsibly as a parent. Mm. When you look at the future of, um, say, America and uh, the American church in particular, do you feel optimistic as we look to navigate these strange waters that we're living mm. in? I think optimism is the wrong term. I, I'm, I'm mindful of my friend Rod Dreher's comment that he's not an optimist, but he is hopeful. I think optimism has connotations of, well, everything's going to turn out okay in the end. We're all going to be all right. I, I think that's rather naive. I think I'm hopeful. And that is, I'm not sure that I'm going to be okay. I'm not sure that I'm going to see much improvement in my lifetime. I'm not sure that my denomination or my church are going to make it through to the end faithfully. But I am confident that God's going to honor his promises. And I am confident that any contradiction or suffering that the church goes through in the, the interim before the return of Christ will be subverted by and used by the Lord for the extension, the expansion, the improvement of his kingdom. Mm. So I would say I'm hopeful. Uh, that doesn't mean that, hey, it's going to work out okay for me in the end. But it does mean that everything will ultimately be consummated by the Lord at the end of time. Well, Carl, thank you so much for uh, helping us to understand this world that we live in and uh, giving us your time today. Thanks for having me back. That was Carl Truman on our rapidly changing post-Christian culture. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.